Oh, also, P.S. If anyone knows anything about frame geometry, please message me. <laughs> just just <laughs> call Dave, dude. Like, you just have to <laughs> Facebook message Dave on, or whatever, or Clefton. Okay. What's up, Polo people? Welcome to the North Sides Polo Podcast. Gavin here with my friends and teammates. We got Liam. Uh, here. And Alex. Hey, what's up? Not much. How are you, Alex? How you been? I've been very busy. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. We got so much great support coming out of that Diego episode. I really, uh, I really loved, you know, just seeing all the outpouring of shares and comments. It felt kind of cool to have a, an episode go so wide and so big. But I think it's mostly due to Diego, not to us. Let's be honest. Yeah, we, we we've seen we've seen this effect when you go through and look at the if you look at the episodes, how many how many get most listens? It's the ones with the. I don't want to see the coolest guests, but it's the one with all the guests that get the most listeners. I think our like first couple episodes too have a lot of views. And I think it's mostly because people like start listening they listen to the first couple and they're like, oh, these guys suck. And then they don't listen to the rest, <laughs> not realizing you may have gotten better over time, which I think we have. I think we've gotten a lot better since we first started. Definitely. At least in the way we record these is way better. Yeah, no more Discord. Mm-hmm. Who Discord? Well, it's, it's good for something. Yeah, I guess so. We don't want to get the Discord lovers on our backs here, Liam. Yeah, I take it back. I retract my statement, Discord. Discord is a time and a place, and recording a podcast with two of the hosts on one audio channel is a very poor use of it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> what about the news, guys? Bike polo news that's happened in the last two weeks. I'm sure there's been some stuff that's occurred that we should probably mention to our listeners to keep them informed. Uh, the biggest one that I was actually involved in is the uh, Enforcer BDs are back in stock, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, that I don't, I don't know if Aaron's made the announcement yet. Like if they've published it, yeah, it's on Instagram. Yeah, so we're not really breaking anything here. But I was talking to him about looking at a bike, and I, I got the inside scoop. Oh, and then uh, we didn't do anything for like two weeks. So, <laughs> but yeah, you can get them. You can get them. You can mess. How are you them. involved? I'm involved because I'm order, I'm ordering one. I'm a, ordering a 26 inch. Oh, what? A 26 yeah. incher. <laughs> oh, this yeah. is pretty big. Like, what what motivated this move? Was it just the fantastic arguments on that one episode we did, or it was just talking to Diego? You know, he said it was the best bike, and no, I'm, I'm kidding. That it was more than that. <laughs> um, I think realistically, I've been wanting to upgrade from the Ad Astro for a long time, but I haven't necessarily found anything that was a significant enough upgrade to justify going for it. So I kind of like push myself off. I'm, I sold the Ad Astra, uh, shout out to Mocha in Ottawa. And I am getting a custom bike hopefully for next summer. But I, because custom bikes and all this stuff lined up is a little dicey, I want to have something just in case to make sure I'm not without a polo bike coming in 2022. And I figure if I'm going down the custom route and all this other stuff, I need to take the time and put my money where my mouth is and try the 26, be open-minded for science. I'm doing this for science. I'm going to try a 26 inch. I'm going to build it to the best of my ability. And I mean, worst case scenario is I try it and I don't like it. And I go back to 700. Right. That would be the worst thing that could happen. And then I can sell a 26 inch bike. That's nice to someone that wants it. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be the best thing that could happen personally. That's probably the best, <laughs> but re- realistically, I think it's going to be somewhere between I'm either going to end up with an awesome custom 700 bike that I love. And I know is better than potentially one of the best 26 inch bikes you can get in the enforcer BD, or I'm going to have the dream 700 bike and I'm going to prefer a 26, in which case we'll have a definitive answer. But I, I think that last one's a little unlikely. <laughs> interesting, interesting stuff. So um, I know that Aaron, when he posted, was saying that you can get these in all kinds of custom colors. Is that true? What's the what's the situation there? Yeah. So if you're, my understanding is if you're pre-ordering, and I'm not sure when the pre-order window stops. So if you want to get in on the pre-order, you should do it like right away. Uh, but if you're pre-ordering, then you can get uh, custom powder coat colors. You can pick, there's like 30 different colors or something crazy like that. Uh, 
in turn, you can pick the coat, like the base coat, and you can pick the logo color. So he just sent me like uh, an image with a whole bunch of palettes, like a whole bunch of uh, colors on it. And he's like, tell me which colors you want. So I'm getting a pretty sweet looking color scheme on this. Uh, don't spoil this it. Don't spoil it. I think that's really cool that you can pick out the colors. And I also want to say before we move on to the next piece of news that, I mean, we're not trying to advertise for Enforcer here or anything. We don't have any kind of deal with them, but definitely not. <laughs> but we want to make this fair, right? So if you have a bike polo company out there and you're making something really cool, you want to bring to market for the bike polo consumers of the world, send us an email, send us a DM on Instagram, because if it's interesting, we'll for sure talk about it on the podcast, because we just want to let everyone know what's going on and keep everyone informed out there. And we're happy to uh, shout out a few products here and there. Be, be warned, uh, there's a good chance we're going to want to interview you for an episode two if you have a company that makes <laughs> bike polo products. Oh, yeah, we're nerds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, get your PR people on it. But no, I'm honestly, I'm really excited. Like, just going back, and it's been so long since I've built a polo bike. Like, I remember, it, it's funny, ha- having a bike, like, once you have your bike sorted, it's like, you just don't have to worry about that at all. Like you just don't think about it. Like you can focus on everything else about polo, but going back and like thinking about everything that goes into a polo bike, it's been, it's been really cool to go back and like, you know, what would I do different now that I, you know, have more experience than the last time I did it. I'm not going to pay a thousand dollars for an ad Astra this time. That's <laughs> you, you that's built up that T one pretty recently though. Right. I did with the carbon, I I, the carbon experiment. That wasn't that long ago. Was it? I did the T one carbon experiment last year and right. That was, I mean, I just ordered a bunch of random. I feel like that was more of me testing the water on AliExpress and it was cool. I like that bike. That is currently the only bike I have for polo right now. Um, it weighs nothing, but ultimately I want something more stable and better. And like now I know going forward, if we're looking at custom frame geometry, especially for the 700, I have an idea of, because a lot of people prefer the, the T1's Geo, the Geo. I know that's like close to what I want, but it's not quite what I want. Mm. So I really wanted to get enough like game tournament experience on the T1 Geo just because that's such a popular 700 frame geometry. And like now I do like it and there's like certain aspects of that. It's just like getting more experience on what what kind of bike you want for polo so that I can actually get exactly what I want out of this custom frame. Absolutely. Okay, what's this next piece of news? Well, it's a bit of a rhetorical question. I feel like... um here in north sides the the season is pretty much wrapping yeah. up maybe a bit sooner than we would have liked i mean it looks like there's some decent snow coming our way this weekend really <laughs> and, uh, well yeah as of, as of well i don't know actually it's like a it's you know they always say it's going to snow a lot more if it if it hasn't snowed by the time of this recording it'll probably have snowed by the time the episode gets posted yeah by the time it's edited <laughs> i'll be like you know, buried, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we were getting, uh, we were getting heckled by the Montreal club cause they were bragging about playing in minus five, but I feel like everyone had a good chuckle cause we were like, of course we played in like minus five <laughs> or yeah. like below even the Boston club was pretty funny and, and they posted some funny pictures of them playing polo, like, you know, in the snow and <laughs> it snows in Boston. Oh, yeah. I think it does a bit. I think it does a little <laughs> yeah. bit. It's coastal, right? So it must snow a little bit at least. Yeah. They get that. I don't know those those rare flurries. I guess mm-hmm. I don't know. What you call Watching those. them have like a torrential snowfall, and we're just like talking on our butts and not knowing the climate. <laughs> That's okay. Let's we um, love to talk about the weather. We're Canadians. That's all here, Canadians eh? do. We talk about the weather. But uh, let's talk about something else pretty special because a few weeks ago we rolled out the scoop challenge and the mantle was taken up by many people, right? Uh, We had a number of people send us in their submissions for them doing the scoop challenge. I'll name a few right off the bat of people who managed to complete them. Well, actually all three of us managed to complete the scoop challenge, which is amazing. Liam, Alex, congratulations. Yeah. With video evidence. With video evidence. Yeah. (laughs) Well, if you don't have video evidence, did you complete the scoop challenge? I mean, the whole challenge is getting it on (laughs) tape in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> non-podcast hosts, we had Salem from New York City, Daniel Hopper from Toronto, Jason Farthing from, I'm going to say Florida, and, and I think that was it. Alex again. I, I always think of I always think of it as Jason from Facebook because he's always posting clips of him doing stuff on yeah, Facebook. Yeah, well, some really amazing <laughs> maneuvers too, and like things that I watch and I go out and try and emulate when I'm playing solo polo, when it's not icy outside like it is now. But shout out Grand Rapids because they sent a photo of a bunch of people trying to do it. We didn't see anyone actually do it in the clip, but we appreciate that you're trying. If they get it, we'll know. Keep it up. 
Yeah. It would be so <laughs> awesome. I mean, the, the challenge stands. Anyone that sends us a video of them completing the scoop challenge, we will post it on our story and uh, make sure you get some love in the comments there because that's pretty cool. But in all the scoop challenge frenzy, a big question came to mind for me. And I'm sure for many of our listeners and Instagram followers, are scoop moves even good? And I mean, this is a debate that's been raging in the polo community for many years. I remember a younger Gavin was firmly on the signs of scoops are probably the best thing you can do in bike polo. But as I've gotten more mature, I've started to drift away. So today we're going to tackle this conversation. We're also going to have a conversation about some other stuff later on in the episode. But let's jump into the scoop thing. So guys, what, what in your mind defines a scoop? Nice, nice ice cream, little soft serve. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's the thing, the hemisphere, hemispherical side of the mallet used to um, oh manipulate the ball in ways that can defy gravity and um, seemingly laws of physics, I would say. Uh-huh. It's my definition. It's an exciting thing. So I think there's, I kind of I mean, broke. Do you want the Webster's dictionary or something? No, no, please no. <laughs> I kind of broke down the different types of scoops into like three categories. The first one is like scoop passes, which are kind of like a pass that you use the scoop side to raise the ball, maybe over a defender or just to get it off the ground. So their mallets have to, it's more likely to get through. Also probably harder to receive. Um, the shoulder joint ball handling kind of move, you know how you can kind of squish the ball between your scoop side and the floor and drag it around for approximately two seconds or more if the ref gets, lets you get away with it. And uh, then the kind of in-air scoop moves that you see where people pick the ball up and using what they claim is centrifugal force, bring it around their front wheel or maybe behind their back wheel. Well, okay, let's just clarify. It's definitely centrifugal force that's holding the ball in. If it's not centrifugal force holding the ball in, it's not a scoop. Well, I was just saying that I've maybe seen some players who it's like a mixture of gravity and centrifugal force, right? Maybe it's 70%. (laughs) centrifugal force 30 percent gravity because the angle of the mallet head is slightly tipped back or if not a little bit more than that i think people get I mean, away with some stuff sometimes yeah and and let's be let's clarify like the scoop challenge is 100 percent gravity. oh in some places yes yeah <laughs> absolutely right. well how are you catching the ball on the mallet head without doing gra- any gravity exactly. yeah of course it's exactly. gravity so I'm just going to open the floor, guys do you think scoop moves are actually effective like if you're trying to win a tournament are you doing a lot of scoops Okay, let me let me just bring it back to the original question. Is scooping good? And I want to I want to get into like what do we mean by good? Is it good in the sense that like it's the best thing you can do with the ball to try to win the game or is it the best thing for bike polo? Cuz I think it's so iconic and cool when you see people like in a tournament final you're trying to win that game, if you see people busting out crazy scoop moves, it like elevates the whole sport. Literally. Whether it actually elevates your win percentage is kind is something maybe separate from that, but I think it does elevate the sport as like a fairly iconic maneuver to bike polo. And like I do think it has a lot of value in that sense. So I would be really sad to see scoops, even like I'd be sad to see scoops get taken out of the game or to have a diminished role, just because I think they're like an iconic part of what makes the intense polo intense polo as opposed to like other games um but that is separate from whether or not it's actually like going to help you win a game there's a reason they keep the scoop end on the mallet if if they weren't any good you probably would just have a flat mallet on both sides right so you can strike the ball you know you can shoot you don't have to worry about whether what side your mallet is when you go to shoot you're not like oh shit is it the scoop end or the or the flat end like obviously it serves some utility in that purpose like philosophically good players that make the right decision in all the different situations they're in having one open side to the mallet and being able to scoop. Like if you only scooped when it was advantageous to do so, it would just make you a better player. The mm. problem that I think a lot of people fall into is they scoop whether or not it's the best thing to do. <laughs> and that, and that's where it can end up being a trap. So like, I think just as a general statement, like I think they're good. I think it like, Generally speaking, if you're in a tournament finale or, or a tournament final or whatever, uh, having a scoop, having scoop tricks in your bag will give you a higher win percentage. But I think it's one of those things that like the threat of the scoop is almost greater than the scoop itself. Mm. Mm. So I have a couple thoughts on everything that's been said so far. I think all three of us can agree right off the bat that scooping is probably good for the game in that it adds 
a level of entertainment and skill and flourish to the game. I don't think anyone can argue against that, really. It's exciting. And spectators watching get a kick out of it. It's cool. Like, that's absolutely right. Now, from a strategic element standpoint, that's where we can start to get some arguments going. I think that's the more compelling piece of this conversation. Because of the three types of scoops I've said, I'm going to say right away that a scoop pass has a lot of utility in the game. 100%. Like that's 100%. just good to be able to do. I've watched so many goals of Gavin scoop passing it into our opponent's face and then it going into our own net. <laughs> oh my gosh, that happened one time. <laughs> happened more than once. Uh, Was it more than I may once? Have been I feel like it a scooper at one point in my life. But uh, <laughs> the second type of scoop, the shoulder joint kind of scoop, I think that also serves significant utility in some cases, especially passing out of that position because it's quite easy to direct the ball. Even if uh, Dave from Lightfoot said he didn't really like that play, I think there's probably some utility there myself. I think most people would agree. But the in-air kind of lacrosse scoops that you see a lot of people use that are really fancy, I'm not sure these are good, to be honest with you guys. So you mean like like just like throwing the ball into the air and and – like an airmail pass or just, no, no. I mean, just like doing sort of a whip around. Yeah, like when you pick the, the ball up and use centrifugal force to shift it from sun, one side of your wheel to the other. And here are my arguments against it. Okay. As someone who's done a lot of these in the past, um, I think that a lot of these moves when it gets shifting the ball from one side of your wheel to the other, whether it's behind your back wheel, behind your, in front of your front wheel, these are the most common ones that you see done. And you can do that without lifting the ball really quickly possibly even more quickly and i think definitely more consistently because as soon as you try to get that ball up into the air and reduce do this move at speed you're adding a lot of extra difficulty to that play of just putting the ball around your front wheel which if you're able to do that you can do that probably more consistently so i think in that case i'm not sure that it's that effective i think it might actually using that move more often than not might actually lead to turnovers more than just bringing the ball around your front wheel I think that move, I agree. I think it's a high risk, high reward move. The exact situation where scooping the ball, like you like scoop the the ball up. So the reward is that you're lifting the ball off the ground and you're maintaining your control on the ball while it's in the air. So like the exact situation that I have used or seen that move used effectively is when you are trying to beat two defenders and you're trying to break past both of them, you set, you like cut to one side, and if they both cover that way, you still have control of the ball to then f- change direction and drive the other side. Yeah. It's like only works in that one situation, only works if both defenders bite on it, but you can at least do like a really pronounced move, and if they don't bite on it, then you can just let it go. You don't have to go back. So like, it, but obviously you're committing to this like crazy driving move where you're going to like do this at speed where you're lifting it up in the air and hopefully they're not getting a mallet in the way like it's a high risk move but i do think in a situation where there's like two defense if if there's two defenders and you're trying to like drive at speed anyway then it can give you more control to redirect the ball than if you just like push it through their bottom bracket and try to get it but okay here's my thing if you were to like scoop it around your front wheel and that forced them to like make a commitment to the right, right? And then you flick it back to the left and you beat them because of that. Could you not do the same thing with the ball on the ground? Push it to the right over your front wheel, around your front wheel quickly to that one side, and then tap it back to the other side quickly? But it looks cooler. I actually think, yeah, the scoop looks cooler. And depending on the court surface, I think you actually have more control in the air. Okay. Like, especially if you're confident, like if, if you're feeling really dialed with your scoops and you're like coming with enough speed that like you're picking it up because your centrifugal force is so great because you're like accelerating at the same time. I think it's actually like, you know, if you get to that level of skill, I think it's actually more control to have it in the scoop. And that's why you can only do two changes of direction. Like we don't want to see people like lacrossing it down the whole field. Mm. Or the whole- and I was going to say like to this point, I think I've had much more success beating defenders with like going around my front wheel and then quickly twisting my wrist and bringing it back the other way. Like you're describing Alex, then I have actually completed the move. Cause if I complete the move, it's just putting the ball on the other side of my bike and the defender is ready for that. If they're playing good defense. But if a lot of defenders, when they see the scoop start, like, Oh, I know what he's going to do. And then if you just fake it back, you can make a bit of separation that way. Sometimes I think it just comes down to knowing when the right time to use each of these moves are. Um, I'll, I'll say like the scoop pass is so effective on bumpy courts when it's raining, or if you're trying to like, 
do a big stretch pass where you can just throw it in front of the person that's receiving it and then they're going to ride up to it anyway. Like if you can just clear defenders mallets, you can just chuck it like the scoop pass. I don't, I mean, we, you know, we're pretty critical on passing on this podcast in general, but like, I think the scoop pass probably makes up the majority of passes I make. Like, well, it's probably drop pass, but like other than drop pass, scoop pass is probably the next bet. The most like frequently used pass in my, in my playbook, just because it's like, if I'm not dropping it to you, I'm probably scooping it half the court and hoping to set you up on a breakaway. Like those are the two constantly reoccurring passes that I think happen in almost every game. As far as the shoulder joint goes, like the ball, I think I always think of it as the ball joint where you're, you're like dragging the ball. I think that's most useful when a defender's covering your front wheel. Cause like, if you think about it, if a defender's covering your front wheel, if you can ball joint behind your back wheel, it gives you so much room if you can actually like play the ball, like either pass it from back there or bring it forward. Like sometimes if a defender's covering my front wheel, my front wheel really well, uh, and I drop the ball all the way back. If they like play the ball, you can just like ride past them then. So I think the shoulder joint, like mm-hmm. you shouldn't be using it if your mallet is at risk of getting poke checked, but in the situation that you can just use it to like reposition the ball relative to your body, it's yeah. super effective. Because it gives you time then to to just focus on moving your bike. Exactly. Because you're not worried about handling the ball. You well, just it's I mean but it, but it makes the defender choose between cover your front wheel, cover your rear wheel. I make a lot, yeah. almost all of my cross passes are from the ball joint position behind my rear wheel because I'm driving the right side and the defender's covering my front wheel. And that means it's like the most open cross pass you're ever going to get. And, and the, and the scoop gives you control. Like you get a lot of control out of that. It's not a, it's not an uncontrolled pass. No, it's really well controlled for coming from the elbow. You can put a lot, as much power as you want on it. The aim is a lot easier than trying sure. to hit the ball sometimes. But uh, my biggest thing for scoops that I think is what makes me a pretty pro scoop in general and the fact that I actually practice scoops is that I honestly think bike pole, even now, the best players in the world are just scratching the surface of what's possible. Uh, I look at other games, other sports out there where you have training programs for kids that work all the way up through their school system and get coaching and training sessions and summer camps dedicated to these sports. Bike pole doesn't have the infrastructure like that. And I can almost guarantee we don't have the skill level that these even amateur athletes have in other games, right? Like probably the best bike pole players in the world are like the equivalent of a good high school basketball player. Uh, at their relative skill level compared to their game just because bike pole is new we don't have professional coaches we don't have the infrastructure that the training so or like the high level athletes like they do in the nba or nhl that show them what's possible right because that's a big part of this too and i just think in the future of bike polo maybe scoops are going to be ubiquitous like maybe there'll be some strategic change that'll happen that will show that the scoop is actually like a super effective play in some way we haven't thought about yet, or maybe we're just not good at enough, good at it yet enough. And perhaps in the future, there'll be teams that just use the scoop to an amazing advantage. And I don't want to be fall, fall behind in that sense. The very least, this is developing my hand-eye coordination and the little utility I get is useful. So I'm going to practice it and keep doing my scoopy scoops. Definitely. I would even say anytime a court surface is unpredictable, the scoop is going to be the same every time mm. like if, if you don't know if you can't control the bounces or you're you're trying to get used to stuff like you i always know how much force it takes to scoop a ball half court you know i always know the amount like i actually think the best pass kind of like how in basketball they used to always use the backboard and now they're like just use a high arc and just swish you know yeah. nothing but net like in that sense it's like do the thing that you can recreate time and time again and i do think that as the skill level increases, scoops are scoops are a play that you can recreate in solo polo on any surface time and time again. That'll translate to multiple situations. And it lets you attack on the third axis. Like it lets you lift the ball to to move it and to sort of like make people second guess, even if they know what's coming. It's like it just it's a wider range of potential plays. I definitely think the scoop is it's here to stay as long as it's legal. And they look cool. <laughs> On that note, I'm curious for you guys. What are your favorite scoop moves? Do you have a personal favorite scoop move that you use? I always pick up scoops on the backhand. Yeah. You know, like I used to, I used to always do the thing where I'd like ride up to the ball and you like 
lift it up kind of like like I think everyone when they first learn to scoop it's like that forehand across your front wheel but I I've sat I've I have honestly my preferred way to scoop now is from the backhand I like let the ball roll up to me I slow down and then I like pick it up in one sort of circular motion and that just being able to play out of out of that like if I could do that while I'm doing a 180 on my front wheel to be able to just have like a 360 degree I could like lift it and release in any angle. That would be like, I don't know that I've ever done it in a game, but if I ever do, I'll be very there happy. There you go. Liam, what's your move? I think I know. <laughs> yeah, you do. Cause it's, it's when you're like at half court or something and you're like going for the switch. So you have another player on your team that's coming like you're, let's say you're going to the, you know, left and they're coming up and they're going to cross you and you go for the fake drop. Like you're going to drop it to them but then you scoop it around your wheel and you keep going <laughs> up the other side. Yeah. And so the defender doesn't know what the hell just happened. I mean, ideally, <laughs> ideally they think that they've dropped it, but you got to sell it. You know, it's like, it's like a trick play, like in football, like you gotta, it's like a pump fake. You know, you got to actually make it seem like you're going to drop it. And then you got to be quick and scoop accelerate and then hopefully rip it in the net. Yeah. I mean, there's so many players that will bite on the, fake drop passes so many players. but then you do it all the time and then people catch on and they're like he's not gonna pass it he's just gonna scoop <laughs> it and then also this is where i turn it over is because i screw up the scoop. But if you don't use it you'll never learn it you know what i mean so no you gotta you gotta make people you know th- think about what they're gonna do you gotta keep that defense on their toes yeah. but at least if you screw up that scoop there's a, like a 50 percent chance you just actually drop pass it or you yeah. throw it into the boards <laughs> and it's like just like we yeah. drew it up yeah, or or it's or it's off the boards to your teammate, and you're like two hundred two hundred IQ. Like. Yeah, yeah. IQ plus. <laughs> there you play. go. I think yeah. my favorite is just like pretty simple. I'm coming up to half, and they're kind of in that position where I'm like on my front wheels on their rear wheel, and they're just mirroring my turns, and I'll like fake scoop it around my front wheel, and then before I bring it across the plane of my front wheel, twist my wrist, bring it back to the left side because I'm a lefty, and then just like push hard and get a forehand shot off because. Generally, when they see me loading up the scoop, they like start to break to the right because they think I'm going to scoop it around my front wheel and break to the right and try to get a backhand shot. But a lot of times the fake I find is just more effective than that actual backhand shot because backhand shots are harder than forehand shots. Let's be honest. Ooh, that's a that's a topic for another day. I, I have heard people say otherwise. I don't know that I agree. With I don't them. agree with them, but I have been practicing and backhand shots are fun. Scoop. There it is. Should we get to our second big argument of the day? Because we got a double whammy argument today. Um, I think it was Jason Farthing who recently posted, I think it was on Facebook around crank arm length. And actually a similar conversation had recently broken out on the bike polo Reddit subreddit. So Alex, why don't you just dive into how this came up in our group chat and why we're deciding to talk about it on the air today? So as I mentioned during the news, I'm buying new polo bikes, building new polo bikes up. And one of the first things that we were looking at is like crank, like what size cranks are you going to put on it? And I've discussed this with like a lot of people in the past. I went on a a little mini deep dive when I actually got the Ad Astra. I was trying to figure out what cranks I was going to put on it. And I didn't really know. And I kind of ended up just going with a 165 Atlas crank. Um, And I actually think that was like the smartest thing I could have done at the time. Um, but we'll we'll get into the, we'll, we'll get back to that. I think the the crank arm length discussion is basically just like what's the best for polo. And I think to be honest, like just to be clear, it's like not obvious. Like there are some studies. Like there was an awesome pink bike article that that went out recently. We'll about, put it on our link uh, tree so people can get it and reference yeah. it. I'll put it on the link tree. Um, it's uh, it it's about look. It looks at a couple different. Google Scholar studies um, or studies through yeah, Google the- Scholar. Cause yeah. Um, but they, it looks at a couple different uh, studies at trying to figure out what the best crank arm length is for mountain biking. And in many, there's a lot of like similarities between the use cases for polo and mountain biking. Like we're basically, we want cranks that are going to accelerate quickly and we don't really care about um, like long-term efficiency in the saddle because like how many how how many consecutive pedal cycles are you actually doing in a game of bike polo uh we care more about the acceleration and stability and and whatnot um 
And yeah, I guess, do we want to just go through sort of what that study found? Well, I think you can hit the major point, And that was that it looked like from the Pink Bike article and some of the studies that I referenced in other areas when I did some research for this podcast, that it doesn't seem like there's a discernible difference in power output based on the length of the crank yeah. arm, as long as the gear ratios and things are adjusted for that. Even amongst taller athletes that are pedaling, it seems as though a 150 or 155 crank arm, it gives you the same power output that a 175 would. And if there is a difference, it's pretty negligible, especially on the polo court from what I saw, which begs a lot of questions, right? Like what other positives could be gained from running a really long crank arm or a really short crank arm? I mean, one of the, uh, I guess just for context, because I know a lot of our listeners aren't super big bike nerds, I'd say 90% of the cranks you're, you're going to be able to buy are between 165 millimeter and 175 millimeter. Typically, they only come in three sizes, 165, 170, 175. Um, the studies we're looking at, we're looking at cranks as short as, oh God, I had it here, as short as 120 and as long as 220 which are like honestly comedic. Like if you saw those on any, if you saw those on a bike, like it would, they would look ridiculous. Um, And even with that, like completely impractical, ridiculous length, the difference in power output was like very marginal. Um, So it's kind of like you were saying, it's kind of like pick whatever you want. It doesn't matter. However, let's think about it in the polo mindset, like bigger cranks take up more space in your bottom bracket. That's like kind of a big deal in the context of bike polo. Like, you ever, like if, if you ever tried to shoot on a goaltender and they've got like really big feet and their pedal like almost touches the ground, like you can't fit a ball underneath the goaltender's pedal and they've got like a shoe that takes up almost all the space and you're like, there's no bottom bracket. There's some pretty that. serious downsides to a setup like that though. Like if we're being honest, I think like any player that has their foot so low to the ground when they're in net that they, uh, you can't fit a ball underneath it. First of all, their pedals at six and 12. So that means they can't dive mm-hmm. out of that quickly. So that's relating to where their feet are in position on the cranks. They're at the top and the bottom of the pedal cycle. So that's a dead point. It's hard to pedal out of that quickly, but also like if it's that low to the ground, when they corner their pedal is going to hit the ground and really mess them up. Right. Pedal <laughs> strikes are a thing in bike polo, especially cornering at yep. speed. And I think that's one of the biggest arguments for a shorter crank arm length. If I'm wrong, not wrong. Absolutely. I think the the two big arguments for short crank arms in the context of bike polo are, I think, the pedal strike and the toe clearance. If you think about it, uh, a lot of polo players, like if you can get an extra inch on your, you think about like, oh, my toe rubs my, like my toe strikes my front wheel when I turn sharply. If you're only rubbing, you know, a cent, if you only need an extra centimeter or so, you know, you're going to get that in the difference between a 175 and a 165, right? It, it just brings your foot that much further back towards the bottom bracket if your cranks are that much Absolutely, shorter. yeah. And I think that's a pretty big advantage. But on my bike, for example, I run a 170 millimeter crank, which is basically industry standard average. And on my Enforcer, I never pedal strike and I never foot strike. Um, and I run a, yeah. I have a size 12 foot. So it's pretty big, size 12 US. And I never have any challenge with that stuff. So that begs me the question, like, why would I change it if the power output's negligible and I'm not pedal striking or hitting my foot on my front wheel? What? Why would I change that? Is there any argument for that, Alex? I mean, when we were talking to Dave from Lightfoot, one of the big things he talked about in frame design was like, how low are you comfortably going with your bottom bracket to make things stable? And I think the big limiting factor is you don't want to get pedal strike. So if you are building a custom frame in the near future, like one of us, one of us might be, uh, having a shorter crank length in mind might allow for a slightly lower bottom bracket height, which could allow the, the bike to be a little bit more like stable. Um, but like, if you already have a frame, then you're not really giving that much. Like if you already have a frame that isn't pedal striking, um, with your current geometry, like your current, how much like your steer angle and all that and your, where your bottom bracket is, if you're already not pedal striking, then I don't think you gain that much. Like you don't really gain anything. From I actually think you lose things. something because 
if you have a bike that's working fine without pedal striking and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to take three, 30 millimeters, 30 centimeters off my crank arm length, just because I think it's cool to have a smaller crank arm. And you know what, I'll have even less pedal strike. Then your seat height is going to have to raise too, because your leg is going to be like not reach as far down in the cycle. It's not going to be as close to the ground as it once was. And that means you have to raise your seat to compensate for that. And then your weight's higher up, you're further from the ground. So your reach is impacted. I, I just don't think that that's something I would want to do. So I think like if you're building a custom frame, which I think the minority of polo players are, um, you can start to have these considerations and maybe it's possible to design your bike around a 150 millimeter crank arm that would be advantageous for you. But if you're on a regular bike or an enforcer or a light foot or anything, and you don't have toe overlap and pedal strike, like why? There's no reason to do this. So one of the things that is different between the two, this is like as close as I'm ever going to get to engineering talk, but having a longer crank arm does mean that your legs have to move a further distance to get the same rotation. So even though we were saying before that the, the power output is relatively like the difference in power output is basically negligible. The difference in terms of how far you actually have to move, what your cadence is and how much torque is generated off of it isn't negligible. So having longer cranks does generate significantly more torque. And if you, one of the things like we talked about with uh, Lightfoot Dave, specifically Gavin for your BD setup, or sorry, your uh, Enforcer 1.3 setup, is that you're you're spinning out the rear wheel. That could be from having too much torque. Which could but there's be more factors associated with torque too, because like your ratio is another big factor in that, as well as your wheel size. All these things are factors. And I think like yeah. if you were to make a smaller crank arm, you'd also have to adjust your ratio accordingly. So it, I don't know if that would actually create a bigger difference on the output as far as like tires squealing on the ground trying to think about what I'm going to do for these upcoming bike builds. And the fact that I'm planning on doing a 700 and a 26 and I'm thinking about different crank length and I'm thinking about different, like there's so many different moving pieces when it comes to figuring out like what gear ratios do you actually want to run? Um, it, it's making, you're going to have to try stuff. That's all it's going to be. You're going to have to buy multiple cogs for whatever hub you run and see what you like to yeah. do. But uh, I think we might have gone off a little bit on the nerd talk there a little bit. I'm sure some listeners are fascinated by this. Oh, a five millimeter difference <laughs> in my crank. Then everyone's like, no, nah, I just want to drink beers at the side of the pool court. That's what I was thinking. Before we completely abandon the nerdy stuff, just just because I know if you're the kind of person, if you're like me or probably like Gavin, like you want to know, okay, you're saying the differences are negligible, but like what is the optimal crank length? We have an answer for you and it's 41% of the length of your tibia. How do you, where does that get, come from? That was, uh, that was one of the conclusions from one of the studies um, that was cited in this pink bike article. <laughs> so you heard it here first. Just measure your tibia, and that—that that is actually where I'm okay. going to start. Just Fair enough. Clear. Like I'm going to start by measuring my tibia. Get some X-rays done and hold the ruler up against them. You know, science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's get to something that's for the every person: the mailbag. The mailbag. Yeah, we got two. Well, one email, one message um, to go through today, and the first one comes from Morgan from Lyon, France, which could only be one specific Morgan. Possibly from. Could you could you imagine if a new player like from Lyon was like, oh, his name's Morgan, like just starts playing, <laughs> thinks super cool. It's like, man, everyone like talks about me all the time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I I think we all know it's Morgan from Mongrels, and uh, he writes, "Hi, Gavin. This is the correct. This is the order he put it in. Hi, Gavin, Liam, and Alex. Sorry, Alex, but your obsession for seven hundred made me put you last. Smile He'll be so happy face. when he hears this episode." I, I saw the, I saw the email come in and I was like lying in bed and I opened it up and I was like, Oh God, I just like closed it and didn't read past that line. He goes on to write, I'm trying to catch up on all the episodes, but first of all, thanks for this. All the episodes are great. I'm super stoked for bike polo content. Just want to share a bit of my views on some point, even if I might be really late. First off, obviously, as we know, 26 for life, as Gavin said, if you want to win, be competitive and most of all, have fun. It's the right choice. 26 for remains life. to be seen. I mean, we're, we're Alex is doing the real world tests. Okay. Yeah. Uh, bike polo is a sport. 
Sorry, Robbie Borgs. I can understand why Morgan thinks that. Uh, he plays a <laughs> yeah. better bike polo, so. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to say, like, disagreeing with Morgan on something, like, it hurts, man. It hurts. <laughs> I, I hold him. Well, this next one we can't disagree are, with him on. Yeah, these are very bullet form. Next one. Lobster trap is illegal. Well, by the letter of the law, it is not. So, Morgan, I'm sorry if you're listening to this, but I'm going to have to disagree with you here. It's not illegal, but highly frowned upon, I would say. <laughs> well, it might be. Is it different in Europe? The rules? The, the yeah, the rules I don't know. I haven't checked the rule set. I think it's, not, it's neither illegal in, in either. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if for the Euros in like 2022, they actually just add lobster trap is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just it's just like a new set a new and i wouldn't blame them yeah i mean that's just how laws are made yeah uh next 3v3 greater than squad even if i like the complete mongrels lineup back yeah i mean let's be real like it's i i agree that it's really fun to have like a big squad of friends like i have more than two friends not that anyone <laughs> wow way to brag podcast, alex but yeah <laughs> um like i love being able to play with, wait like, who, who's people, this because i'm not your friend I'm just <laughs> <laughs> that's why we always have guests just on. kidding uh, um but yeah no i think um we, we've talked th- we've talked about this before i think we're all 3v3 aficionados we are but you know the time and place for squad every once in a while yeah squad all right this next one's a bit longer playing on flats at training and pickup but then clipping in fraternities has been my way of practicing for at least the past five or six years just like having a heavier mallet for practice and a really light one for attorneys i'm sure alex has a take here i mean so I hate I, I I hate that, but I, I I can't argue with it. Like obviously it works, uh, but I feel like you have to practice with the gear that you know. Like maybe maybe it's because Morgan's put in enough time that when he goes to play a tournament, he switches back to his normal stuff. Like he's not tripping over it because it's so new. Like he he has enough experience with his tournament setup that like he can go back to it. And pick, you know he's not coming from like a deficit. But I'm a big proponent of practice with the equipment you want to. I don't know where I fall on it. I think there's definitely, I think the heavier mallet thing makes a lot of sense because a certain amount of that is fatiguing your forearm muscles and the muscles that grip strength. And in a long tournament where you're ball handling a lot and doing a lot of maneuvers, your forearms get tired. I think a lot of people have experienced that. So I think some amount of strength training for those muscles, endurance training is definitely worthwhile. And maybe that means playing with a heavier mallet. All I would say is like the week before the tournament, I would probably switch back to my regular mallet just to get the feel back again. Um, I don't know about the flats versus clips. I've heard this from a lot of people. I'll just, I'm going to do it next year. I'm saying it right now. I'll be playing my pickup wow. and my um, Whoa. practicing on my flats. And then for tournaments, I will switch back to clips, but I'm going to switch back like a week in advance just to get familiar again. Not just the day of, I don't think. That's too much for me. Be the dab I'm gonna dab so much. I, I, so I, I, have, I have a theory that this is my theory for for this comment. I think that what Morgan is saying here works really well for Morgan, but I don't necessarily think it works well for others. And here's here's the line that I'll draw: when you stick handle in a tournament, when you mess up stick handling in a tournament, how much of it is because your fitness wasn't there, and how much of it is because your skill level or your practice wasn't there? If you're messing up more because your fitness isn't there, then do this, train, improve your fitness. But I think for the vast majority of polo players, like I can speak for myself, when I flub the ball, it's not because, you know, sometimes it's because I'm out of shape, but like really it's because I'm not skilled enough and I just need to practice with my mallet. So I think if you're just trying to practice with your mallet, just practice with it. Don't have like a heavy practice head and switch back and forth. But I think once you get, once you cross that threshold, then, you know, you can, you can do the Morgan training technique. All that said, my hot question would be, which scene has got the best bike polo, competitively speaking, Europe or North America? Sorry, we skipped the most important thing. Oh, sorry. Yeah, now. he added a photo <laughs> representing the Mongo strategy. Yeah, I'll post that on Instagram sick. soon it's after sick. this. <laughs> um, just to describe photo. for the listeners, it's a scorpion with flames all around it. And then each claw, I believe one is Doty, the other one is Emmett's face stapled to them. And then, of course, the dagger on the end of the scorpion's tail is Morgan with a big grin on his face. So I'll be posting that to Instagram for people to comment on. And, you know, we all want to know the mongrel's secret to winning. And here it is. Yeah. He gave us the blueprint. We asked for it and he sent it to us. All right. All right, Liam. Back to what you were saying, that question. Yeah, this is a tough question to answer, especially for guys that haven't really played in Europe ever. Which scene is more competitive, NAH or um, Europe? But uh, I'll turn it over to Alex because I know he's got the takes. 
So Nico, uh, I had the opportunity to catch up with Nico, who was actually played in Europe somewhat recently, Toronto veteran staple. Uh, and I think I asked him how it was over there, and uh, he just said, "Oh man, there's a lot of good players. It's a different, it's a different world. They're very, very, very good, and he loves it." But he's like, "Holy shit, man, they're really good." <laughs> so I, I don't, you know, I love, I love North America, I love NAH, but I think if we're talking about like who's got the the fastest, rippinest, like highest skill level polo. I think it's Europe, and I don't think it's close. Really? Okay. I think it depends on where in NAs you live. I think there are some regions that are more competitive than others. I think if you take the best North American players and put them against average European players, the best NA players yeah. will win. But, but I mean, the last World Championship was like two teams from Lyon, France. I, I don't think that's a coincidence. For sure. <laughs> but like, that's just one part of. Europe we you know we're not getting a very good sample from Germany and from uh, I know Belgium that's not even that's not even Austria. including call me daddy that's not even yeah, including call like, me daddy wasn't even there <laughs> there's there's so many top teams that when I think of like when I think of teams that I would not be surprised to see in a world championship semifinal they're basically all European and there's a couple North American teams that like I want to see there and I'd be really happy to see them there and I think they definitely could be there but like, if you said, okay, there's a world finals taking place, I expect there to be two European mm-hmm. teams. Either way, I think NAs and Euros, they have to watch out because I honestly think like South America is coming for all of us. Just watching some of the videos they're posting from their local tournaments and seeing how many people are there and the social media presence. I think Latin America, South America, this is going to be the future of the game in a couple of years. I would not this- be surprised at all. It all goes back to what you said before it, when we were talking about the scoop, like it's the people that are growing up with it now that are going to be pushing the envelope in the future. So Europe might be the most competitive in 2022, but I think, you know, that's not to say that we could just have a couple competitive clubs. People train a little bit, you know, there's like legends of Doty training on his own and Budapest and just showing up as a, a polo legend. Like we're like one or two people like that away from North America or Latin America or, you know, like Africa being the the top polo continent in the world. Right. It just takes, it just takes the pole. It just takes the players to, to put in the work and to, to get, to get to that. I've level. seen those Cairo training sessions. They're scary. Yeah. They're coming for us all. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be uh Africa. Dude, I would love, could you imagine traveling to Africa That'd be amazing. for polo? And It'd it turns so- out there's just, there's just a, there's just clubs there that have been playing against each other. They're like legends. They just crush everyone. <laughs> They're like scooping like nobody's business. Like, yeah. This hey, is Cairo could be there in a few years. Like, and honestly, I'd love to see bike pole expand across the rest of Africa. And I think there's a lot of keen people to play that could be there. The Asian polo scene looks really big too. Oceania, like on it, like I, I stand by, I feel like anyone who's just, you know, at this point, like if someone was able to dedicate time and train and they got like people to push them any any region could be the best but i think right now it's it's yeah it's hard to disagree with the results at the world stage i look forward to trying to change that (laughs) that that new bike uh our next email so to speak comes to us from a facebook group chat (laughs) um and it's from former guest ashwin from whitehorse um, and he writes, this is in response to the theme of, you know, we talk about professional bike polo with a lot of the guests and, um, what his thoughts are on it. He says, bike polo is great because it's DIY. It's do it yourself. Trying to make it work with TV commercial sponsorship profits goes against the very basis of the anti-capitalist ethos that the sport was founded on and makes it great. Appreciate it as a rare part of culture that is both local and global without being corporatized in almost any way. For this reason, ski pole mallets are dope. Political wheel sign covers, sorry, political sign wheel covers are dope and non-professional polo is the only way. Yeah, I think he was speaking directly in response to something Diego had said in his interview where he's like, hopefully one day someone gets paid to play this. And I think Ashwin is just, that made him just turn sour. He said, no, no one should ever be paid to play this game. It's perfect the way it is. And I think there's a lot of people out there that have a similar feeling. What are your takes, guys? But I think we also touched on it when we interviewed yeah, Sean from Fixcraft and the whole professional hardcore yeah. bike polo. And I think the same discussion, I'm sure, popped up um, around that time. I think it's an important thing to talk about because it's like, yeah, I, I, I would agree with what Ashwin's saying. What is appealing to it for a lot of people is the fact that it doesn't have any of this sort of, I won't, I guess I could say trappings or any other like, you know, frills with conventional sports. I mean, even Diego 
himself in the interview said he didn't really get into sports, but yeah. he got into polo. And then since getting in has become, you know, a competitive staple. But yeah. I would argue if polo was like any other cycling discipline, maybe we wouldn't have Diego playing it. Mm-hmm. If the, if the local community was like a, a, re- a regular sports thing. But if we were to look at it through lens of like something like skateboarding, which is very, I think definitely came out of the same sort of DIY anti-capitalist ethic. Um, obviously it has like, it's not in the same vein as like hockey or anything like that. And that there's not really a professional league. There's professional skateboarders and there's like competitions and there is, there is a lot of money to for sure in skateboarding to between like apparel and um, you know, sponsorships and stuff like that. But it, I feel so like- There's just so many posers out there. Posers with wallets. <laughs> hey, I'm not going to hate on any skateboarders, uh, but it, it it's managed to sort of keep that. I'd say, like in in the, in the creation of people making their own skate videos. Obviously, it's different because it's not a team sport. You know, it's like it's sort of an individual. It's a past like it's an individual sort. Of I thing. was actually going to bring up the skateboarding kind of model in this because my personal opinion on it is I totally agree with Ashwin as far as like grassroots polo is so beautiful because. You got people battling alongside people with ski pole mallets and mountain bikes, and some of them are amazing at what they do. But I don't think that that necessarily means we can't have bike polo grow and be bigger and have larger tournaments and recruit more players. And unfortunately, a certain amount of financial backing has to happen for the sport to grow to a certain level, right? And I think having large tournaments and players that maybe are trying to win larger and larger prizes is a huge way of getting other athletes into this game and getting it more visible out there. And I think that can only help us because it is a bit exhausting from a local club kind of perspective to be constantly worried about your numbers dwindling out because people just don't get the ethos of our sport anymore. And I worry about that. I worry about that a lot. Ultimately, I just want to be able to play pickup all around the world wherever I go and have fun. And if that if that means that we have to, I don't know, get in the Olympics or be part of X Games or have monster energy drinks at the side of the court, like with their signs up, I'm okay with that if it means it exposes us to a larger audience and gets more people involved in playing, because that just means more bike pole for me and a lot less work recruiting players the hard way like we've been doing for years. That's kind of my take on it. I wish we could do the same thing skateboarding did. Have some big yeah. stars out there that are playing and traveling and, and being ambassadors for the game. Have big tournaments that are internationally recognized. But like, you know what? There's still a local skate park that has competitions where they give away free boards all the time. And the kids show up in their ripped jeans and skate it out and have a lot of fun. And I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. That's my only thing. Yeah, I definitely don't want to see well i think the biggest thing is just taking making decisions that are right at the time right like it would be cool if there was some sort of like professional league for polo but i don't know that we have the community to be able to sustain that right now if and and one of the things i will also acknowledge is i think it's a little different between north america and europe like europe it's a lot easier like i think there's more people at a competitive level living in a closer proximity to each other. Like they might be able to get a league like that going. I'm not, I don't want to say like, I don't want to speak for them because I'm not as familiar with their, their setup. And like, if that happens over there, like I would, I would watch every week. I would watch, like, I want, I want to see this stuff, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. uh, I think looking at sort of what we have in North America, we're we're so far away from that. Like, even if a TV station did come to us with a deal, kind of like going back to the Sean interview where he, said he got close to that. Even if, if there was a, a league or a deal or something, like I don't think we have the community to be able to support that right now. Um, so I think it's important to make the decisions that like you can at the time. And coming from an, an esports perspective where I've seen a lot of different games, you know, different barriers to entry and there's differences obviously between esports and regular sports, but they try to grow too fast and that can actually be their their undoing. Like you gotta just you need the community, you need the base first, and then you need to make the competitive decisions and organizations that make sense for like, for where you're at. Um, the biggest thing I'd say is like, I, I think for big events, we should definitely be open to having sponsors that can help us have big events um, or that can help subsidize things. Cause I think it would be cool to have another world. It's been a while and it would be awesome to, to have it and to have it accessible so that players that are traveling halfway around the world aren't at a huge financial disadvantage. Mm. Um, for having to, to fly 
like transatlantic or whatever. But at the same time, I think we have to be very discerning over the sponsors we take on because nobody wants to be choosing between a $2,000 sneaker and women's participation. Fair, fair. I don't know. I think there's a bit of a chicken and the egg here because at one side you're like, we don't have the community to sustain a professional league, but the other side of it, think about how like a televised event would grow our community. And I kind of look at some of the other sports out there. I know we're always thinking about ice hockey and soccer and football and all these things, but there are plenty of other amateur sports that still get televised, you know, when they have their world championships, like, I don't know, like even, I don't know, there's all kinds of them out there or they're in the Olympics or they're in the X games. And sure, maybe there aren't professionals that make a living playing the game, but they get a bit of money from a company here, a company there, and that helps pay for their trip to that tournament and their hotel room. And I think that would be a good approach for bike pole to take where it is right now is see if we can partner with other organizations to get into bigger sporting events and to take it from there and see where it goes. Because the only way to grow the game is, well, there's two ways. One at the grassroots level, like we've been doing for decades, but then also to push something into the mainstream a little bit more. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that if we take that approach. But I want to make sure we're keeping bike pole weird at the, at the community level too. But I don't think we're going to worry about that that much. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's always going to be weird. I think the main thing I get from this is just, and I agree, the reason I agree with Ashton, because it's sort of this lamenting, because like these people that are professional level, you know, we'll call them professional level level players of bike polo. It's like, of course I would want them to, you find this thing that you're very good at and you want to succeed and that's what you want to do for your life. But, you know, in our sort of, capitalist consumer society we everyone needs to make money and then so they have to get paid somehow um and so it's like it's just sort of this like cognitive dissonance of being like of course like everyone just wants to play polo and play pickup around the world and and do all that stuff in the way we live our lives now it's just like either yeah we need to become this sort of um more official organized thing or risk being uh i mean i'm not sure polo is not going to die anytime soon or anything like that but you know it's not going to be able to sustain pro level athletes. I will say the one thing he yeah. touched on was the sort of local and global and connection between the culture. Cause it's like, we do try to do these things like people host tournaments and they say, you know, they provide housing and it's like that right there is making it accessible for people. They don't have to come and spend money to stay somewhere. They can, they can stay with someone else. And like, that's just removing a financial barrier and people being donate. Yeah. Like donating their time um, for, tournaments or just for doing things like that like i i have faith in that like that is what kind of keeps the polo community going is these sort of people being you know altruistic for the sake of the sport although i know that's it only goes so far you know it, you can't ask everything yeah someone to keep it, keep i don't think that's unique to bike polo in any way though like those altruistic community leaders are, <laughs> are in every sport <laughs> yeah i'm not saying like the hockey coach who's coaching peewee hockey is like no uh, they're not doing for the money, that's for sure. No, <laughs> like, I think a lot of grassroots sports has a lot of the same ethos that bike polo has. Even some of the community stuff. Like there's community centers down my street that play free basketball and give kids basketballs and do all kinds of things. Like they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I think it's really easy to say, oh, that guy's that guy's making big money or Tim Hortons is the one that's giving this kid a free basketball. But hey, those kids go home and they dribble and they have fun in their communities. And that wouldn't exist without that. So, and they have the city's built basketball courts yeah. for them, and they have you know it would be re- it would be awesome to have a city built polo court that it, even if we handed out Tim Hortons mallets every year like that whatever man you know I'd take that I guess I just have a picture <laughs> of a roll up the rim cup on the end <laughs> roll up your rim uh, sometimes yeah I don't know I think you're right both of you are, and Ashwin's right too. Professional bike polo, where people are making a living playing this game, that's a far way off. But it'd be cool to see the sport highlighted on a more international stage. What about what about professional bike polo podcasts? What if you could make money <laughs> doing a like hypothetically? Uh, if anyone could please tell me how to do it because uh, we're definitely not making any sense at all. <laughs> well, that's all I got for the mailbag. So, Let's wrap it up. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at northsidepolopodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can, I guess, message us on Facebook. You can message us on Instagram at Northside Polo Podcast. Um, we'd love to hear 
your questions, comments, concerns, ideas for shows. If you want to be on the show, reach out to us. Um, we're more than happy to have guests on, especially as we go into the winter. We're not going to be playing as much polo, so we'll have more time to talk about polo, which is fun. Yeah, right, guys? What I want to do all the yeah. time. <laughs> well, as a, as a beer point, do we have a beer point for this week? But I felt like that last discussion was intense enough. I just, I just, I just want to say beer point, uh, Justin sucks. Okay. And on that note. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, he didn't email us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Come on, Justin. <laughs> Let's wrap this sucker up. Keep your rubber side down, all you folks out there that are still playing bike polo in your warm climates. We are jealous. And we'll be dreaming of seeing you on the court sometime as we put up this episode and edit it. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Bye for now. Bye. Tropical Anchorage.